for the year of 2019, the Environmental Film Festival of Australia took place between the 24th of October and the 1st of November. On Saturday the 26th, at Cinema Nova in Carlton, the film The Hottest August was shown. To quote the film's review in Slate magazine, Even face to face with a bleak future, The Hottest August is steeped in delight, the kind that reminds us that there's beauty in the world, and a future that's worth fighting for. The Hottest August asks its viewers, what were you doing while the planet was burning? Billed as the Humans of New York approach to climate change filmmaking, The Hottest August explores the different ways people respond to living in the age of climate anxiety, confronted by an endless stream of dire statistics, terrifying images, and a ticking clock. Filmed every day over the course of a month, this film captures lived realities, job insecurity, racialized violence, gentrification, disaster recovery, fears of technology, all compounding and compounded by how we deal with the rapidly changing world around us. Presented as a poetic artifact, The Hottest August offers a refreshingly lucid look at the backdrop to our ecological crisis. As hypnotically beautiful as it is haunting, this film is about our future from the perspective of the present. After the screening of this film, I, Mark Spencer, was joined by an amazing panel to discuss the film and the impact that it had had on us. And I'm really grateful to be able to bring that to you now. And if you get the chance to see The Hottest August in the future, I'd highly recommend you take the opportunity and indeed get along to EFA, the Environmental Film Festival, which is fast becoming an institution in the climate community in Melbourne. And we're very grateful to have it. So without further ado, here's the panel. There we go. Hello, everybody. Well, I'm sure many of you didn't know quite what to expect in that film, so I hope your expectations were met. <laughs> All right, so uh, I've got some introductions to make here for my lovely panel, and then we can get into it. So, to my left, the lovely Lauren Rickards, School of Global Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University. Lauren is an associate professor in the things I just said. <laughs> Welcome, Lauren. To my right, we have Leslie Head, Head, ironically, of School of Geography at the University of Melbourne. And then to her right is Ben, Ben Henley, Research Fellow at University of Melbourne, lecturer at Monash University, so polygamist there with the unis, that's exciting. <laughs> and an Associate Investigator in the ARC Center of Excellence for Climate Extremes, okay? That's enough jokes for me, we've got 20 minutes for our discussion, and then 10 minutes for questions from all of you. I asked before we started this, while we are sort of planning it out, if uh, after this film, if we're all feeling a little low energy and it's like, you know, nearly 10.30, it's nearly some of our bedtimes, mine, uh, that we maybe get the energy back up by asking, if you were a superhero, what would your superhero name be? Because we had the amazing African, super, uh, African astronaut, who I absolutely loved, and I want to start with you, Ben. Well, I work a little bit in drought, so I think I'm drought destructor. Um, no That's a pretty more. strong bar. That's pretty high. Leslie, what do you think? Well, I don't think I'm a superhero in any world, but um, I'll go with Earth Lady. Earth Lady could go for like the, the cartographer-in-chief, I guess, I mean, geography. It's not all maps, but Lauren's got better than that. Well, I think it's hard to go past XR Lent. 
Ooh. <laughs> I think I only got maybe two of the meanings there. I think it's probably more than that. And I'll go with highly visible man. So, so it might be a bit of a shtick, me wearing a high-vis hoodie tonight, although um, to make it slightly less of one, I, I was working today on my, my blue-collar job, moving furniture, as was what I was wearing today on the job. But yeah, I could have got changed out of this. I could be wearing a shirt as normal. But, um, you know, I've noticed something since the election. We all said, hey, we didn't really talk to blue-collar people enough. We didn't get out of our, our bubbles and speak to people. And I um, haven't seen a lot of other high-vis around the climate movement a lot in the last six months. There's more I could say about that, but I won't, so I'll get into it with the panel. How did we feel about the subjects in that film? The, the people interviewed, the people who shared their stories, especially as respected members of kind of climate academia, as the three of you are, um, did we feel, I don't know, sorry for them? Were they, were they victims of climate change? Were they kind of agents? Do they, they have some ability to affect the world around them that they were choosing not to, or how do we kind of respond to their stories? Ben? Yeah, I guess I watched the film, I was really just taking, I just found myself observing, you know. I think as scientists we, it's our main thing to observe, and I just found myself just watching and thinking, what are these people really thinking that, you know, climate change even is, or do they even know what climate change is? Um, so yeah, I just took an observational back step, I guess, and I, I'm, I'm a physical scientist, so I'm not really working in the social science so much. But um, and I, you know, that is just as much about observation as mm -hmm. as a physical scientist. So yeah, I, I didn't feel sorry for them, but I did think about um, you know what is coming for for these people and what is coming for this this world really. I think the um, it's quite a slow film, and the, for me, the slowness of the film emphasises the everyday nature of the way in which climate change and lots of other social processes interact and, and almost the banality of some of the slow-moving catastrophe that we're in the middle of. But on the other hand, you saw lots of resilience and uh, resourcefulness there. So the victims won't necessarily be who we think they're going to be. I mean, working in this space and um, working particularly on impacts and vulnerability, I suppose, I read a lot of the film through those kind of categories that I work with. Mm. Um, and so some of those are kind of fairly straightforward to do with spatial exposure. And so there was, you know, obviously a whole lot of scenes there exposing places that have been affected and that would be affected. But also the way in which we try to insulate and um, insulate ourselves physically and then manage to immunise ourselves psychologically. Um, and watching it actually in this very immunised mm. space here in the kind of medium of film, I actually found myself staring at the backs of your heads <laughs> quite a lot. And so really sort of experiencing the experience of watching a film about climate change, about people over there in America not kind of taking it seriously. I don't know, I was sort of, I, I'm not sort of quite sure what, where that places us, mm. but there's something very sort of surreal and uncanny about the entire thing of just these sort of layers of distance. Um, so that, that was part of it. And then, of course, one of the kind of major issues with all of this uh, is structural vulnerability or, you know, the, the kind of systematic ways in which people are already unevenly positioned in society, un already have unevenly 
privileged lives or just different lives, just very different lives. Some, you know, extremely kind of um, familiar type things, even in very different sorts of environments that we saw there, and then some things that were clearly put there. <laughs> I've never been to a wrecker room, but I was like, <laughs> you know, I could see the logic of that. But, you know, um, so kind of unfamiliar and familiar, and so that sort of juxtaposition. So on the one hand, you can read it through kind of the layers of privilege, and we heard some people's interpretation of what they see as the structures, and we may want to engage with them about those and give different interpretations, but it's interesting to see how they interpret those. But then also just simply the difference and diversity and kind of mad um, chaos of people's differences in lives as well. So, yeah, there was a lot, lot going on in that film. Yeah, there absolutely was, and it was touched on a lot there, that there's a lot of space left in the film for us to interpret these various people's stories, you know, dozens of people in this film. Sounds like the, the rec room thing might be a good recommendation for the RMIT Christmas party. That'd be a good one. <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I had this opportunity, was uh, climate justice is something that is obviously, as us watching this film, it's quite close to hand, but it's hard yet to figure out what climate justice is and really put a finger on what it means, especially in the context shown in this film. How much of what we saw was, you know, could relate to climate justice in some way, which was just social justice and inequity and inequality? What particular moments in the film kind of spoke to climate justice for you, and what did you kind of see in that as relating to climate justice? And sorry, this is a surprise question. They didn't know this was coming. Well, I don't see climate justice particularly separately from the social justice question, and it's very much entangled. I think all of our environmental issues are very much entangled with questions of, of justice and, as Lauren said, questions of, of privilege. Perhaps the, the vignette that spoke to me the most was the, the two women who'd been through Sandy and who were still living in the, in the area there and talking about what was to come, what they'd been through and contesting Al Gore and and so on, but you could also hear a lot of contradictions in those statements and I think we've all got contradictory responses so and contradictory experiences and somehow in this chaos we have to live with those contradictions as well. Um, yeah, I guess some of the moments that spoke to me were really those ones where I just thought, gee, we're all actually just the same, aren't we? I mean, there was, there was a guy there um, who had just finished high school and uh, I think everyone in this room has well and truly finished high school. But he just said, um, you know, I just want a world where I can look my future children in, in, in the eye and not worry. And I think that just really connected with me and I think it connects with a lot of people. Um, but actually, yeah, we, I felt in, a lot in common with the experience of many of those people. They, they have very different lives to me. Um, but yeah, the, the film did a beautiful job of just of just letting you sit back, and, and I think everyone who watches that film would have a different narrative going on in their mind. They'd be all they'd be thinking different things, and um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, liked it. I mean, like Leslie, I was really struck by those two women that were speaking about FEMA, and that's partly because I was actually lucky enough to do a um, small study tour that went and um, after Hurricane Sandy to New York. And, talk to groups, including groups that had literally not had water and electricity in New York City for three months. And yet, was that was so invisible. And so, 
to me, the kind of the pain of, of part of this, and it comes back to the sort of slowness and mundaneness of the film and the way it presents, was just that normalisation of abandonment. It's like just, yeah, we've we've forgotten, and there was certainly in the people we spoke to um, immense pain, and there was a lot of fighting back and resistance, but there was also just that sort of sense of like it made a certain amount of sense, even though it was outrageous at the same time. It's that juxtaposition of just complete outrage and outrageousness uh, with that normalisation. I think that's something we can see in Australia as well. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, sort of, I guess, apart with that, and so it comes back to the contradictions of the women, but also that woman, I don't know if you remember the one that was in a sort of a county um, work kind of court, and she was sort of just quickly on the steps there saying what she's hoping, and it was very much that individualised, well, you know, things are not how I want it to be, so I've got to make some changes and I'm going to do that because I'm not happy where I am, I'm going to have a better life. And, you know, you admire that and you think, you know, good, great. <laughs> but also just, um, I don't know, there's sort of a, just with the injustice and the inequity of not understanding necessarily, and I guess once you start talking like that, it sounds very patronising, but not seeing the system and the structures that are holding back people as well, and that sort of um, absorption of the blame and the responsibility to such an extent, um, I find also very poignant. Mm. Very good. So I've had a, a couple of questions there, and, and my questions, my panelists spun into gold. And that's been great. Thank you very much for that. So we are going to open up to some questions from you. You have some mics that are going to go out. And this is the point where I say I am a podcaster, and that means that even though I know I can talk for ages when someone gives me a mic, and that is a condition that other people know as well, uh, if you do have a, a comment or something you'd like to share, feel free to talk to me afterwards. I've got a recorder. I'd love to record it <laughs> for the audience, but we are here to hear the panel's uh, opinions expert opinions, so if you have a question for them, that'd be fantastic. We got one up the back. Hi, good evening. I'd just like to ask anyone who, who can answer this about the basic income that we have, we heard in the film. Any of you would like to comment on that? Universal basic income, what do we think? Worth a try. Hey. Uh, really difficult to think how to operationalise it and how to convince enough people to do it, but that, that's an example of the kind of radical transformative processes we're going to have to go through in the next few decades. Absolutely. I think it's highly relevant to climate change, like in a sort of a direct sense in a number of ways. One, of course, without that sort of basic income, then you do have much greater levels of vulnerability and therefore um, higher impacts of climate change for groups that don't have that. We also, of course, have the whole transition risk, which is unevenly distributed. So the need to kind of help protect the cascading groups that are going to be affected as finally we start to get some serious um, mitigation actions, finally start to move towards a lower carbon society, there's a greater need than ever to work on that. And then of course there's also the carbon sequestration and the kind of enormous amount of land repair and land restoration that's needed. And so it seems like it's a, it's a you know, they call it co-benefit. It's something that has a lots of different wins, so it's um, a highly relevant topic that would um, be something that hopefully we could pursue uh, irrespective of the precise uh, climatic conditions that are emerging. Mm. In the film, kind of climate change and people's experience plays out 
in a very um, urban area on the city fringes, if you can reflect on uh, climate and climate change impact across those various landscapes and perhaps reflecting on your own work in that space? Yeah, so I guess um, from my perspective, uh, I was just thinking actually, wouldn't it be great to have that kind of thing in Australia? Uh, and just imagine what the kinds of the things that people would say if we literally went out into you know drought drought stricken uh, New South Wales or Queensland and just uh, and and got a high resolution camera right in the face of people like that and just the experiences that are, that are going on out there and uh, so it's um you know scientifically it's 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 an extremely severe drought and we've had really severe droughts in the past um. And there's aspects of this drought that are certainly driven by climate change. And, uh, yeah, but I guess um, uh, it would be a fascinating thing to, to see that come to Australia. Yeah. And just to follow on the drought example in a rural and or an urban context maybe, but the, that kind of normalisation or absorption of, of increased change into the everyday, I think we could see lots of Australian examples of the way we talk about or the way many of us talk about, you know, we're good at fire, we're good at drought, this is just the way things are in Australia. And so there's a kind of gung-ho stoicism that is a two-edged sword, really, for how we might cope with increased levels of change. Absolutely, it's a Dorothy McKellar syndrome, isn't it? Um, but I mean, in terms of the landscape thing, one of the um, things that struck me about the film was because it was uh, set within a fairly bounded geographical area, you sort of tended to start thinking like that. Whereas in actual fact, one of the things about climate change, of course, is that we start thinking in terms of all the processes, the kind of industrial metabolic processes, the globalised processes that we've established to allow places like New York to be what they are and of course New York is you know completely dynamic it's not a static thing and so actually it'd be interesting to have that second film that traces all the value chains all the resource chains the capital that we heard discussed that is actually part of that New York ecosystem if you like and that's I guess one of the kind of intellectual challenges for climate change is that we actually have to start thinking in terms of those sorts of flows and processes uh, if we are to tackle this properly. I guess um, there's a lot of uncertainty sort of buried within most of the exchanges in the film. I wanted to know about perhaps the relationship between uncertainty and hope, I guess, and how that sort of, I guess, translates through the film, um, but also perhaps on an everyday context in Australia as well. Mm. Recently, Litro, Litro put on a panel at the NGV and had Bob Brown and, and David Ritter, who's the head of Greenpeace Asia Pacific, and he said, I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but he said, like, hope is the ability to not be convinced by despair, despite the facts of despair. So that there is this kind of, like, we're not sure how we're going to do it, but because there's that p potential, then you can have hope. Uh, if we were certain about how the, these things are going to go, um, maybe there wouldn't be room for hope. That's just my two cents. I, mean, I think it's quite clear that the, whatever we might be hopeful about in relation to climate change, the outcomes are definitely very uncertain. And so we need to, to find a way to conceptualise that hope in a way. That sounds very abstract, but a lot of people have done a lot of thinking about what hope means in that 
context and one of the characteristics of a lot of the writing about hope in that context is that it's not about optimism, it's not about having good feelings, it's about acting and, and uh, practising action. And I think we can see some examples of that recently in Extinction Rebellion and the School Strikes for Climate, that they are, even though they're born out of fear and anger and so on, they're also very hopeful actions just because they're about action and practice and people doing something. Yeah, so I think uh, there's people on this panel are better to speak about hope than me, but, but the uncertainty and, and just the challenge of uh, kind of coming from this world of scientific uncertainty, what we think is scientific un scientifically uncertain about the physical climate system, actually the biggest piece of the puzzle is the human system. Uh, that, you know, in terms of where we're heading uh, into the future, we look at all of these different scenarios and try and understand the physical world as it works, uh, but the biggest uncertainty of all is the human system and, and just how the social uh, hope actually relates to the future evolution of the climate system is, is fascinating. And um, yeah, I think some of these, these movements, and particularly um, you know, I'm pretty inspired by uh, Greta and, and her work, and I think there's certainly some hope for the future. And just to build on that, I mean, I think one of the things climate change and the whole Anthropocene catastrophe is um, demonstrating to us is that there's lots of different types of hope. We have to kind of start diversifying and um, not only is hope of practice, but we also um, need to qualitatively test our type of hope. We need courageous hope um, and very fierce, fierce hope. So I don't know if this is a silly question or not. It's probably quite obvious to some people. There's no but, um, Yeah, so I noticed that, like probably just everyone noticed this, like, there are certain, well, in the film as well, um, there are people who, like, don't concern themselves with climate change, um, and then certain people do, so, um, yeah, and, like, I guess people experience this every day when you have conversations. Um, and so I was just wondering if um, you think that there are, like, if you think, like, or if you can cite the paper maybe as well, uh, if there are any factors that you think um, lead certain people to become climate activists, and um, then on the other hand, like um, experiences, uh, like any experiences that lead them um, to become climate deniers. And um, what experiences do you think might like, shift people's attitudes um, one way or the other? It is 100% their star sign. <laughs> <laughs> you go first. Yeah. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> And I don't have the answer except to say that you know, it's, it's like all of what we've been talking about. Um, we all start from different positions um, and some of those are just simply diverse and different and then some of them are actually commensurable and they're uneven. And people have a different opportunity to understand and to grasp and to deal with climate change in their lives. I guess I try to take a fairly non-judgmental approach to those who don't necessarily um, believe, accept climate change and try to do exactly what you're trying to do here is to understand where that comes from. And so for example with some of the farming households that I've worked with over time, um, they can't believe in it and they probably do now, I'm talking about research five, ten years ago, because they were at the time in the midst of really, really difficult times and they, their hope couldn't bear the burden of that extra reality. 
And I think we've all been like that. It's like, you know, I'm just going to park that <laughs> over there because I just cannot, I just don't have the bandwidth to deal with that right now. So, you know, the kind of acceptance of climate change, I think, isn't sort of, doesn't really stick to people like a really static label. It fluctuates, it even fluctuates during a day, it fluctuates during a movie. Um, and there's also different types of climate change denial. There's the outright, it's not existing. There's the kind of, yeah, it might be happening, but it's not us. It's like the moon. Um, so, um, or that, you know, it's, it's happening, but it's not really like a big deal. Everyone's getting their knickers in the knot. I'm not sure why. You know, there's a whole range of different things. And so, again, just trying to sort of understand where people are at, um, it's a whole sort of convergence of different factors. And one thing we were discussing before actually was that the um, we shouldn't think that we have to convince 100% of people that climate change is a reality. In order to kind of move social change, you don't have to change 100% of, of the minds. So it's, it's about finding enough momentum in those who are already on board or those who are wavering. Um, and for some of those people, in the movie, I don't think it's not particularly relevant to them actually whether it's climate change or not in terms of their everyday lives and the decisions they have to make about surviving the next little while. And just one small thing to add um, maybe that's a different question for mitigation or adaptation. So, for mitigation, maybe we just need to get to this critical mass of people in the world who vote enough of the kinds of people into positions of power to actually make real change on a global level. But in terms of adaptation, in terms of you know, the human experience of extreme events, that news somehow has to get to everyone that um, you know, there are impacts and they will, uh, they will hit people personally. We just hope that the news outpaces the events themselves because otherwise people will react to just whether or not we can avoid a lot of human pain and suffering in the meantime. On that cheerful note, <laughs> thank you so much for coming tonight. This has been such an honor and a joy. I'm just going to quickly rattle off every name I know involved with Aoife. Thank you to Kat. Thank you to Bo. Thank you to Bridie. Thank you to Brooke. Thank you to Alex. Thank you to the dozens of other people I don't know by name to thank. Thanks to EFA. Thanks for coming along tonight to patronize EFA. This is a great institution we've got here in Melbourne. We're so lucky to have it. Thank you to my panel here tonight. If you'd like to hear this recording as a, a podcast, unfortunately we weren't able to get the mic feeds tonight, but we do have one of the, sorry, what was your name? Suba. Thank you, Suba, for sitting here with the recorder and recording this tonight. Uh, the recording will be up on Climactic, which is a podcast me and 20 other people record around the country talking to normal people about climate change and what we can do about it and how we cope. So check it out at climactic.fm in a couple weeks. Or go there now and listen to other good stuff. All right, thank you so much. Have a good night. Bye. Thank you for listening to what might be the first recorded panel ever from the Environmental Film Festival of Australia, but hopefully definitely not the last. If you've been following Climactic for some time, you know we're a fan of bringing you live events to let you catch up on something you missed, something you otherwise couldn't get to, or as a way to learn something. 
whether that's information or a perspective that you otherwise might not be exposed to. Now, the Climactic family is growing. We have more hosts than ever, and they're geared up to bring you some amazing interviews, some amazing chats, and some other cool experiments. And Climactic is starting to burst at the seams a little bit. So we're going to start a new show, adding to Climactic and Artbreaker, which is going to be live events from Australia and the South Pacific. Whether those are events we ourselves have recorded, or events that the community and community groups record themselves and produce with us. We are looking to launch this new show before 2020. And as I record this on the 1st of November, that's coming up very soon. So we'd love to hear what you would call this new show. A feed of live events from the climate community from Australia and the South Pacific. And sadly, the feed is already a show from the ABC. So I'd love to hear what you think. Just get in touch at hello at climactic.fm. Send us a message on Facebook or Twitter at Climactic Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with a full episode in just a couple of days. The Climactic Collective. Collective.